Good afternoon, my friends. Welcome back and happy Wednesday. Welcome again to To Your Health with Dr. G. My name is Dr. Mark Gomez. I'm a board-certified internal medicine physician practicing out of Edward Hospital in Naperville, Illinois. Hey, today is such a great day. Not only are we concluding my hashtag Cancer Sucks series, but today's actually my 20th show. So I'm here to uh, just enjoy and bask in, in the enjoyment and the celebration and the blessings that we've had thus far. So welcome back, everybody. So for the last month almost, we've been talking about hashtag cancer sucks. And each week what I've done is I've broken down a different type of cancer. We started out talking about colorectal cancer. Then we talked about breast cancer. Then we talked about lung cancer. And today, this show is out there for you fellas. It's, today's show is about prostate cancer. And before I go in and introduce my guests, again, I'm going to give you guys some information. But the important thing when we talk about with prostate cancer is that it's real. And many men are touched by this condition. But before I got, dive in and tell you more about prostate cancer and what we're going to do, continue this hashtag cancer sucks, we're going to do a couple different things. I really want people to take away from this show that, that treatments are out there. Screening is important. But at the end of the day, again, we talk about cancer because cancer can affect everybody. We want to know that there are good clinicians out there to help you and your families, those that you love, those that are touched and diagnosed by, by any kind of cancer. And that was the whole purpose of this hashtag cancer sucks series. I want people to have accurate information from reliable sources. The reality is that there's a lot of false and misleading information out there. And when we talk about navigating the health system, it's your health, it's your wellness, it's your family, it's your loved ones. And it's very important that people get the right information from the right sources. So that is why I created this hashtag Cancer Sucks series to get you guys the information. And it's been such a blessing thus far to talk about it quite frankly, with my medical experts. So again, we're in for a treat today because I've got an exclusive with my good friend, Dr. Bywan. But before we get into that, let me hit you with a quick, a quick disclaimer. The content of To Your Health with Dr. G is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and that the content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Further details can be found at www.toyourhealthwithdrg.com slash disclaimer. Again, my name is Dr. Mark Owens. You can call me Dr. G. Welcome back to the show. Remember, check me out on my website, www.drmarkgoins.com. That's again, www.drmarkgoins.com. Check me out on my handles, of course, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at To Your Health, Dr. G. So we're going to talk about prostate cancer today. And again, a cancer that is extremely common. Let me give you what I'll hit you with a couple statistics, then we're going to get into some of the discussion. The reality is that prostate cancer, a man's lifetime risk is one in nine. And if there's a family history of prostate cancer, that risk goes up to estimated about one in three. Each year in this country, over 165,000 men are diagnosed with prostate cancer. And the reality is that almost 29,000 of those men will die from this cancer. So again, prostate cancer is real. So we're going to get talk about what's out there. We're going to break down any kind of barriers that are out there, things that I'm told in the, as a clinician, things that my colleagues told as a clinician. We want people to have access to the right information for this serious topic. 
So again, what I want to do this week, again, as we conclude my hashtag cancer sucks series, we're going to break down this prostate cancer. So I want to introduce my great colleague, and he and I met uh, through our uh, through our affiliation together with Edward Hospital, and he and he um, and he's a clinician with Elmer's Clinic and on staff at Elmer's Hospital, and and we actually kind of connected through uh, our medical director uh, at the hospital, Dr. Lingerman, and he kind of connected us, and certainly uh, you went around and you came by, you were gracious enough to come by your office, in my office, and introduce yourself to me. But again, I was really, really struck by just your passion and what you're doing as a, as, a, as, a, as a urologist, as a clinician, and dealing with these kind of conditions, and really helping advise us uh, as primary care physicians. And another good thing is I like is that you respond to my messages on the electronic medical record. So without further ado, I want to introduce my friend and colleague, Dr. Khalid Bawan. Uh, Dr. Bawan is a board-certified urologist with Elmhurst Clinic. You can check him out, of course, at www.eehealth.org. Again, Dr. Bawan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. G. I appreciate it. Hey, you bet. Uh, well, I want you to do this. Uh, why don't you tell us about where you went to medical school, where you did your training, and kind of like how this theme of prostate cancer fits into your daily life as a clinician. Sure. Um, I would love to, first of all, uh, thank you very much for inviting me on this uh, wonderful program. Uh, so my name is uh, Dr. Khalid Badwan. I'm a board-certified urologist, as Dr. G mentioned. I've been in practice for 11 years. I did my uh, medical school training at Loyola University, which is where Dr. G uh, also went. Uh, then I did my urology residency at Boston University Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. And then I did an additional fellowship year at Washington University Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, uh, focusing on uh, kidney stones and uh, kidney cancer, uh, as well as some prostate cancer work as well. So I've been in Elmhurst now for 11 years, uh, general urology, and see uh, our fair share of prostate cancer patients. In terms of where it fits in, any practicing urologist, busy urologist, sees probably anywhere from 20 to 30 patients uh, with some prostate ailment, whether a follow-up or new diagnosis of prostate cancer a week. So this is a disease that we deal with, you know, on a daily basis extensively. Thank you, Dr. Bobon. You know, the reality is that, again, when, when I wanted to have these shows, again, and we were talking a little bit off air about how we just want to have, get people to have reliable and correct information. And having you here is just great because this topic sits well with so many people. Um, so many people have prostate, their families are, uh, family members with prostate cancer, people that have been diagnosed with it. And, and so hearing the right information from the right authorities, the medical authorities, is very important. Um, so what I want to do today is I'm going to ask you a lot of different kind of questions, but we're going to just have a nice kind of conversation on some things because I want to help set the record straight. Certainly me as a primary care physician, I'm usually on the front end of sending the patients over to you. And so uh, I can learn a lot of things, and learning is certainly uh, multi-directional going back and forth so so you know you're getting patients from my end and then of course I'm learning some more things as, as well but together this kind of multidisciplinary approach is hopefully going to help us uh, help us move the needle as far as options that are out there for prostate cancer so I want to start out like this so in medicine of course when people come into our office they come in for the chief complaint as we call it, going back to our days in Loyola, remember those days? Yes. And, uh, the, uh, the learning, patient, learning to take history, the, absolutely. The patient yeah. experience where you had like the, uh, the, the patients that uh, were the actors, and uh, you learn all that kind of stuff. Sure. And, uh, but we learn a lot of stuff. But when people come to us and, and, and see us in the office, they come in with what's called a chief complaint. And the chief complaint is why they're there. And so uh, when I see the chief complaint of either I'm concerned for prostate cancer or or I 
want to get screened for prostate cancer, certainly at that point I have to kind of make that judgment call and, and start the process. But as a frontline physician, uh, it is so important, and we're going to talk a little bit later about what maybe your advice on what we can do better as clinicians to hopefully help move this needle. So the question of the hour is, how are we going to reduce the burden? So doc, Dr. Bawan, the reality is we talk about one in nine men being diagnosed with prostate cancer. Um, how real is this problem? Because certainly you'll see a lot of cases, I might see it in, in, in the primary care setting, and I might do a test called a, a PSA or what's called a digital, or a digital rectal exam, and then they refer them over to you. But, but can you talk a little bit about just how real this, 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 this diagnosis is? Well, it's very real. So prior to uh, us starting to use PSA as a screening test for prostate cancer, which was probably the late 80s, early 90s when it uh, was detected, and to give our, view, our listeners uh, kind of a, a background, so PSA is a protein test. It's a blood test that's administered to patients, and it detects a protein, which is called PSA. That stands for prostate-specific antigen. And this is a normal protein that the prostate produces. But studies uh, in the late 80s and early 90s correlated elevated levels of PSA with higher incidences of prostate cancer, so it began to be used as a screening test. Prior to the use of PSA as a screening test, most patients who presented to their physicians or their urologists with prostate cancer had, for all intents and purposes, incurable disease. Because by the time you develop symptoms of this cancer, it's probably too late. You cannot be cured of it, so you go on therapies that kind of help prevent its spread and slow its progression down. Um, the majority of patients that come to me as a urologist actually have no symptoms. So usually it's just an abnormal PSA result. So the, the primary care physician, an internist like Dr. G or a family practice physician, many times order these tests as kind of a part of the battery of tests that patients get once or twice a year, along with their cholesterol and any other medicines. And if it comes back abnormal, patients are typically referred to a urologist. So most of the time there aren't any symptoms from prostate cancer in terms Excellent. of our practice. Well, and, that, and that's a great thing, um, and I'm, I'm glad. I, I went to a conference one time, and, and when we were talking about PSAs in a little more detail, and one of the neurologists that was giving a talk, he said, hey, you know, we can, uh, we can help out, and, and, and we'll get into a little bit about some of the different, got, different medical bodies that are, re that are recommending certain types of screening or when to screen, and we'll talk a little bit about that so, so people that are listening to the show can kind of figure out what's the optimal timing. But, but I always, I'm, not, I'm not afraid to say, hey, as an intern, I'm not afraid to say, hey, we have an abnormal test here, and I want you to see somebody. And, and, and so can you talk a little bit more about how the relationship uh, uh, benefits as this multidisciplinary approach uh, um, as far as how we can help hopefully move the needle on prostate cancer and lowering our risks? Well, the difficult thing in prostate cancer, which is uh, kind of a unique thing, that is different than other cancers is there's no uh, consensus opinion about what the right approach is for any one patient. So this is one of those cancers where kind of it behooves the patient to become very educated about their options, about the pluses and minuses of looking for it or screening for it versus not. And it's different from other cancers where you have sort of a stepwise fashion. You have a test, the test comes up with result X or Y. If you have X, you move on to this treatment. If you have Y, you move on to a different treatment. With prostate cancer, it doesn't work this way. So I think if you have good relations with physicians and other disciplines, and the patient has resources to use, be it the urologist, be it their primary care mm -hmm. physician, radiation oncology, which we'll talk about a little bit later, 
who have also an intricate involvement in this disease. Those physicians can then tailor the treatment that fits the patient in terms of their expectations, uh, in terms of things that they would deem as acceptable or not acceptable in terms of side effects for treatment, and sometimes no treatment at all. Sometimes, you know, watchful or waiting or, or active surveillance is what's called, and I guess we'll touch, about, uh, touch upon that also later. Excellent. Thank you. You know, uh, one of the challenges, and I get, I get a lot of questions asked to me, is, is who's at risk? And, and we know, obviously, age plays a factor, but there's several other things, you know, when we talk about maybe genetics or lifestyle. And when I think in cancer in general, I should back up a little bit, when we think about cancer in general, you know, we want people to have healthy and healthy lifestyles. You know, we talk about just general rule, general thoughts, exercise, don't smoke cigarettes, um, things in, other things in moderation, don't consume a lot of alcohol, eat a healthy diet. Um, but a lot of times, when it comes to something in, in cancer, something prostate cancer, in addition to the age, we look at some of the racial kind of disparities, and so we certainly see uh, one of the, the highest incidences of prostate cancer in, in African American men. Uh, as opposed to Caucasian men. Is there any kind of thought process on why that might be happening? Why you might see prostate in a little more, in one population uh, of people more than other? Uh, so I, I would agree with you 100%. So uh, studies have shown that the, the main risk factors for developing prostate cancer are advanced age. So as men age into their 50s and 60s and later decades, they become at an increased risk for prostate cancer. That's a clearly a risk factor for it. Uh, that's why we don't screen for patients usually less than typically 50 or 55 is when we start screening for it. Uh, African-American background seems to be a risk factor for prostate cancer. Now, this is an area that's somewhat controversial. Uh, you can understand that studies that look at this show elevated uh, incidences of it. More importantly than the elevated risks of prostate cancer is the higher aggressiveness of prostate cancer in African-American men. Now that's also a point of debate because there may be issues related to access, there may be issues related to stage of diagnosis, but even when you compare African-Americans with non-African-American patient populations and compare them stage for stage, they seem to do slightly worse in terms of their overall survival, in terms of cancer-specific survival. Now, uh, you know, we can't go into the detail because we don't have enough time, why that is remains unclear. Okay. It could be genetic issues, it could be hormonal issues. So age is a risk factor, uh, racial background is a risk factor, family history is a big risk factor. So patients with a strong family history, a first degree relative, a father or a brother, um, are at a significantly increased, 50% increased risk compared to the general population that have prostate cancer. Wow. And, that's, and that's what we when we talk about us, us as clinicians, you know, one of the things, you know, we're trying to help move the needle. We know that disease burden is out there, whether it's whether it's, you know, certainly talking about cancer, but when we think about like heart disease, diabetes, uh, COPD, there's still a lot of health risks that are out there. And what we want to do is hopefully start moving the needle. So, I, so certainly I, I know it's, you know, as a physician, certainly as on the front lines as a primary care doctor, I want to move that needle. I want to make that lifetime risk of one in nine for, for men, maybe make it one in 20. But, but, but the hard thing is sometimes, as you mentioned a little bit about access, uh, we still see a lot of men that may not go to the doctor, as you as you certainly said. Well, a lot of times, when prosecutors found it's it's uh, they may may not have any symptoms. But but again, this is kind of like what can, you know. Let me ask you this question: What can we do better to get the message out there? For example, uh, there's a lot of breast cancer campaigns going on, a lot of celebrity involvement. So you really have a lot and a ton of research dollars, hundreds of millions of research dollars. But you don't get that same kind of sexiness of prostate cancer, what, what do you think we should be doing more to kind of create more urgency about this real condition? 
I think education ultimately is, is the key to these things. But the, the dilemma with prostate cancer, which, as I mentioned earlier, is kind of a unique aspect of this disease, is that, like you mentioned earlier in your program, the majority of men who have prostate cancer are not going to die of it. So in this country, we diagnose somewhere around 230,000 cases a year. About 30,000 people die of this disease. So it's about a 10 percentage point uh, death you know, rate in terms of patients diagnosed versus patients who die of it. The concern and the problem is uh, over-treatment. So since we've started using PSA 20 years ago or so, studies have suggested that cancer in the prostate had been over-treated. So there's a lot of men, in theory, who have had been treated, who presumably wouldn't, would have been fine had they not been diagnosed and not been treated for cancer. So I think it gives prostate cancer a bit of a stigma that is not found in other cancers and probably limits how much, you know, how many public drives you see, you know, to try to, over you know, to, try to diagnose prostate cancer as compared to breast cancer or lung cancer or ovarian cancer. So that's one issue. Um, so I think that the difficulty with this disease mostly is finding the right approach, finding the right balance between not over-diagnosing and over-treating it, and at the same time, not prescribing more of an ostrich technique where you just stick your hand in the sand, pretend that it doesn't exist, because that's not the right approach either. So the medium, the, the right approach has to be somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. Thank you. There was a recent um, publication that was put out, I know, I don't care if it was American College of Physicians or American Cancer Society, going back to about screening, and um, Really, it kind of kind of shocked the world a little bit. This is done a little bit earlier this year, where, where where they kind of put a hard cap on the upper limits of screening. But I know, really, when it comes to screening testing, a lot of the the consensus is to have that shared decision making amongst the physician and their patient. Um, is there a particular age that you're looking at? You mentioned a little bit fifty, maybe fifty five. But but are there times where you maybe want to start screening earlier than that? So the challenge, Dr. G, is that you just can't, there's not, there's a lack of consensus studies that prove that you should start screening patients at this age or at that age. What I think as a urologist looking at all the data that comes out is I think patients um, without a family history of prostate cancer, without high risk uh, characteristics like the racial backgrounds we talked about, um, should start screening at age 50. And what they should do is they should have a PSA drawn and have a prostate exam. Could be by their primary. They don't have to have a urologist do this once every two years. Uh, if you do have a family history of prostate cancer, my recommendation is somewhere in your 40s, you should have a baseline PSA. And if that P PSA is elevated, so let's say over 1.5, it doesn't mean you should be subjected to a biopsy, but it should you should go into kind of a watch more carefully kind of group where maybe you should see a urologist, and that urologist should be seeing you once every year, every two years to screen you. Where you stop, so we said 50, 55, let's say, is where most patients should be somewhere in the 40s, get a baseline, and then start at 50 if you're low risk. Where you should stop screening is, again, different depending on the study you look at. But probably in your 70s, the benefits of screening for prostate cancer become outweighed by the drawbacks of it. Uh, at least that's what studies have shown. Yeah. Is there like a, you know, situation, I think as people get older in life, and we certainly have said, yeah, as we get older, there's some there's more risk, but also at the same time, men are not necessarily dying from prostate cancer, they're dying from other conditions. And, and some of the stuff that I've read, again, maybe some of the kind of conflicting messages will say, well, if somebody's got maybe less than 10 years left, 10 years life expectancy, 
that person should probably not be a candidate. Some some uh, uh, screening bodies say maybe 15 years within the last uh, last of somebody's life. But what do you do? Like, say say a gentleman comes in and says, "Hey, doc, I'm I'm 75. I've been used to getting screening all the time for my primary care doctor. I want to keep the screening going. Do you just?" try to have a better conversation? Is it just more education? Or do you even potentially just say, you know what I'm just gonna do, if I'm gonna get your blood, I'm gonna, for other things, I might as well just get a PSA. Is there, is there any kind of cap on when you, stop, when you may stop doing that? I think if a patient is concerned enough about it, we would continue doing it even into their 80s. Mm-hmm. But we would be very clear with patients that if, it, if the PSA came back abnormal, we're much less likely to proceed with a biopsy, which is the next step in diagnosing prostate cancer than we would if a patient is in their 50s or in their 60s. Gotcha. Can you describe a little bit more about biopsies um, and what that entails for people? Because certainly one of my things as a primary care doctor is uh, I might have that patient come back and see me. I did a PSA and I say, hey, you know, your PSA is elevated. I'm going to get you to um, uh, one of my routes, get over to you. And, uh, but I might, feel, I might feel the phone call from the family or the patient themselves or the message might make it through its nurses to me and they say, well, I'm scared. I've read this stuff on Google about a biopsy. That's the most horrifying experience ever, and then they don't go and see you, and certainly they don't get the biopsy. How can we kind of ease people's concerns about a procedure like that? And can you maybe, can you maybe explain how does a biopsy, what, what's, what are the steps in that? So a biopsy is an office procedure for most patients. It involves uh, the patient coming into the office, typically doesn't require any type of a general anesthetic. We give patients uh, local anesthetic with lidocaine gel, that numbs up uh, the, the anal area, the rectal area, that's where the biopsy is done through. And then a probe is inserted, a small probe is inserted uh, in the anus, into the rectum. And we use the probe to take ultrasound pictures of the prostate, that gives us an idea of the size of the prostate. It also gives us a view so that we can target the prostate when we biopsy it. And then it's a very small needle that is inserted through this probe, and we typically get anywhere from 12 to 14 samples, half on the right and half on the left uh, of the prostate. It is one of the most well-tolerated things that we do in the office. There's a lot of things that I do to patients that are a lot worse than a biopsy. Uh, so we rarely ever have to cancel it because the patient is in too much pain. Afterwards, we tell patients to take over-the-counter pain medications, Tylenol or, or um, you know, non-steroidals like Advil or Motrin, and they do very well. Excellent. So thank you for clarifying that about just some of the, the biopsy in, in itself. Again, we're talking about trying to break down some barriers, and some of the barriers may just be that. Uh, certainly barriers to get a procedure done. So it's reassuring to know to people that, hey, you know, we're going to walk this line, we're going to walk down this pathway together, but you're going to walk down this pathway with, with experts who will guide you along the way and make sure that your experience uh, certainly isn't what Dr. Google says, a harrowing experience. But we want again, we want people to have information. So, so say what happens. Okay, so you get the biopsy results, um, and obviously we're looking. You, know, you said twelve to fourteen, half on the right, half on the left lobe of the prostate. Um, what, what's the next step in that? Say, say it does come back as prostate cancer on one of the biopsies. What's kind of the next step in the process? So the next step is to sit down and discuss these results with the patient. Typically, I notify patients by phone of the results, uh, we go into a little bit of detail if it's positive, but typically most of the discussion is had face-to-face. Depending on the the results of the biopsy, additional tests might be required to kind of get an idea of how advanced the cancer is. So one of the things that the pathologist tells us about is something called the Gleason score, which is a number that reflects the aggressiveness of the disease. We also obviously look at the PSA that the patient 
you know, that the patient had that brought them to my attention, usually in the first place, uh, results of their rectal exams to see if there's any nodules in the prostate. All that information is then used to kind of put a patient, so to speak, in one of the risk categories. Uh, I like to divide patients into three groups. Some urologists like to divide them into even more groups. But it's a low-risk, intermediate risk, and a high-risk group. Okay. And that helps us for a couple of different reasons. First, it gives the patient an idea of how concerned we are in terms of their cancer. So that also reflects the options that would be appropriate for treatment. Uh, it also makes the patient understand, to some extent, uh, you know, what we're dealing with. So it's important to be upfront with the patient. A low-risk patient you know, should have understanding that this cancer is probably not going to cause problems for them during their life, lifespan. But a high-risk patient obviously should be told that it, it might, that very, very likely might do that. Um, so that's basically how we approach it. And then typically I give patients anywhere from four to six weeks to formulate a decision. It's not something that they're told, here are your options, you have to decide today. Because as I mentioned earlier, education is a very important part of this. So I don't tell patients what they should do. I present them with the options, have them think about it, read up about it, and then they come back typically two or three weeks later to discuss further. Yes, uh, I'm a big believer in an in, in informed uh, decision-making. And, and as medical professionals, yes, our, our advice, we are consultants, and there's no doubt about that as we're trying to help give people the right tools to make the right decisions and the correct decisions. Again, and get, going back to you know, we don't want people to get all their information from Dr. Google uh, because the information can be wrong a lot of the time. So, again, getting your information from reliable sources. So you, you mentioned about kind of like low-risk, intermediate, high, and high-risk. You know, from kind of doing some of my prep work for the show again, as, a, as, a, as an internist, I've got a general knowledge of some things, but again, you're in the trenches a lot when it comes to this diagnosis, because by the time um, I get an elevated PSA or I feel something abnormal on a digital rectal exam, you know, I'm shipping them over to you, and, and you guys kind of take the baton and lead them through, but, you know, we, have, we stay in contact with things. But, but how do you kind of, um, what are the kind of different options that are out there? You mentioned a little bit earlier you can observe. There's something called active surveillance. Then there's other kind of things like procedures, um, uh, in, in, including you know prostatectomy and uh, radiation and things like that. But um, is each kind of category like low risk, intermediate, high risk? Does that kind of kind of lead to those specific kind of pathways for interventions? Correct. So mm -hmm. some options work really well for certain uh, risk groups and not so well for other risk groups. So, as I mentioned earlier, broadly speaking, the three options for management, let's call it management because some of them don't treat prostate cancer, are active surveillance or watchful waiting, and I'll explain the difference between those two, radiation therapy, and that comes in different types of radiation, or surgery. Each of those options has advantages and disadvantages, and each of those options works really well for certain risk groups and less well for other risk groups. So to start off with the risk groups, low-risk patients uh, typically have low PSAs, so a, a normal PSA should be less than four. So a patient, say, with a PSA of six is considered low-risk in terms of their PSA. They also have low Gleason score. So Gleason score, again, is that number that the pathologist gives us that reflects the aggressiveness of this disease. It ranges, for our purposes, between six and ten, ten being very aggressive cancer, six being not aggressive. So low-risk category patient would have a PS or a Gleason score, I should say, of six, or usually some sevens uh, on the low end of the sevens. So sevens can be a three and four, I'll explain that in a minute, or four and three. So three and four can be considered kind of a low-risk uh, patient. They also have uh, minimal nodularity or palpable abnormalities on their prostate exam. So when we do a digital rectal exam, 
we're not feeling a rock-hard prostate that's, you know, abnormal on both sides. There might be a small nodule on one side. Uh, so that also correlates with a low-risk category. So those patients who are in low-risk category have essentially their options, all three are appropriate options for treat those patients, to treat those patients. They can go on an active surveillance protocol. That means they do nothing to treat their cancer, but follow up with us every four months or three months to do the rectal exam again and to get a PSA periodically. And as long as those parameters don't change, we don't, we don't provide treatment and they avoid the side effects of treatments altogether. We typically recommend getting another biopsy within a year and that's done to increase our confidence, so to speak, in the cancer that they have because the more you look, the more accurate your assessment of the cancer. So that's active surveillance. The advantages of the avoidance of treatment. The drawback is the small possibility that the cancer progresses or advances if you don't treat, which statistically is pretty low, but it's not zero. So that's important for patients to understand. The next group is surgery. Or actually, we were doing it by risk. So the next group is an intermediate risk group. So you move up a little bit on those parameters we talked about. So their PSA can be above 10. They might have Gleason scores of 8s, you know, not so much 9s, but maybe 7s Seven. and 8s. Um, and their prostate exam may be a little bit more advanced than what we talked about with the low-risk group. For those patients, active surveillance becomes less than an ideal option because the chance of the cancer progressing in those patients is higher than the low-risk group. While I do sometimes have patients that opt for that approach, I typically don't recommend that very strongly. Again, as Dr. G mentioned earlier, an older patient who has more medical problems probably would be a reasonable candidate to go on active surveillance even if they have intermediate or even higher risk disease because again you play this statistical yeah, game. Play the, the risk game. And Correct. Be likely to again pass from something else, maybe they're diabetic or things like that. That's yeah. exactly yeah. right. On the last group is the high risk group. So that group never should be treated with active surveillance or watchful waiting except in very unique situations where the patient is very likely to have side effects from treatment or their life expectancy is very, very small, uh, very short. Uh, they typically are treated either by radiation therapy or by surgery. Well, we can talk a little bit more about the pros and cons of those approaches. Yeah, yeah. I think um, it's interesting because I'll get some of these questions asked, and I'm glad you're, you're taking the time to explain this stuff because I get asked these kind of questions myself. It's easy for me to say, hey, well, just call, call, call Dr. Baiwan again, but, but, but having me as a clinician, as, a, as an interest, have a little more of a working knowledge of this, that I can have a little more of a conversation just to kind of lead, just to kind of erase any kind of um, anxiety that, that a patient may have is actually really good. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit more about radiation? Uh, you know, from, from the idea, of course, uh, I can kind of give you the idea of, from a primary care perspective, the idea of radiation is you basically um, uh, use um, a form of either x-rays or, 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 or some sort of uh, uh, charged particles or or things like that, um, and basically, you want to basically find the cancer cell and then destroy its genetic material. Um, but 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 when it comes out to radiation, uh, there there are some drawbacks, uh, but there are some good 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 benefits too. So why don't you explain a little bit about you know when is radiation used and and what are some of the drawbacks about radiation? So radiation is a is a common form of treatment for a lot of different kinds of cancers, not just the prostate. And the way it works. Uh, is that you radiate the patient or you expose a particular part of the patient's body, the part that has the cancer, 
to ionizing radiation, which is essentially a form of energy, you can think of it. And as this energy travels through the tissues of the body, uh, when it hits the cancer cells, it tends to damage their DNA. And this damage appears to correlate with the degree of cell division. So the more frequently the cells divide, the more, the more damage they sustain from radiation treatment. And one of the things that makes cancer cells cancer cells is they divide much more frequently yeah. than our own tissues. So that's, in a way, a good thing in that they tend to be damaged much more than our own tissues, but it also means that our own tissues can be damaged to some extent by the radiation. Treatment is uh, given in terms of external beam radiation, which is probably the most common form of radiation treatment for prostate cancer, over the span of anywhere from four to six weeks. So okay. patients go to a radiation center or a cancer center every day, Monday through Friday, probably for 10 or 15 minutes. By the time they've had a couple of appointments there, they know the they're used staff to it, yeah. and the staff knows them, so they're in and out of there in 10 yeah. or 15 minutes. And they get a small dose of radiation that then accumulates over that course of four or five weeks or six weeks. Um, advantages of that approach in terms of cancer treatment, in terms of any treatment, is you can pretty much keep up your daily schedule yeah. intact. So if you have work responsibilities, if you have responsibilities at home, um, there's no you know, recovery time, there's no recuperation time, you're not in the hospital for a very long time. The drawback are side effects to the radiation therapy. So those can be uh, irritative urination symptoms, so that frequency of urination, going to the bathroom more often than usual, waking up a little bit more often at nighttime. Sometimes you can experience uh, issues with going to the bathroom, number two, uh, diarrhea, some discomfort when you have a bowel movement. In my experience, as treatment has be have become better and better uh, over the last few decades, you know, those side effects tend to be pretty unlikely. But any patient who is, you know, considering this option should be told uh, that this is a possibility. Uh, in terms of prostate cancer, specifically with radiation therapy, there's also some risks of erection problems. So the nerves that control our erections as men are very close to the prostate. So it's very difficult to treat prostate cancer and not potentially damage those nerves. You can look at different studies and try to figure out the incidences of those types of uh, problems, but I tell patients it's probably at least a 50 or 60% likelihood that there will be some decrease in your erection function after radiation from the outside. The other form of radiation is what's called brachytherapy, brachytherapy or yes. a seed implant. So this is a treatment that's done through an outpatient procedure, so the patient's asleep, and rather than radiate patients from the outside, these very small pellets or beads are um, implanted with small amounts of ionizing radiation. It could be iodine-121, it could be palladium, uh, it could be cesium. These are radioactive materials, and they have different physical properties to treat cancers in different uh, stages. But basically, those seeds are placed into the prostate with a 40-minute procedure. And then over the span of anywhere from 3 to 12 months, the radiation decays or evaporates. And as it does that, it exposes the tissues of the prostate adjacent to the beads, the radiation therapy. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for breaking that down. And then the last thing that you mentioned, you mentioned about a surgical approach. And I know you, uh, you and your colleagues uh, in your practice are involved in the surgical approach. Sometimes people need a more aggressive approach. Um, uh, prostatectomy. Can you talk a little bit about, about when is that indicated uh, in prostate cancer? So it's an option for treatment, mm -hmm. uh, just like radiation is an option, and just like seed implants are an option. It's a very good option, and it involves removal of the prostate and the seminal vesicles, which are glands that sit behind the prostate. So that uh, is usually done in this day and age laparoscopically or robotically. 
The procedure itself takes anywhere from two to three hours, uh, depending on the patient's anatomy and so forth and so on. Uh, patients are usually in the hospital typically overnight, but sometimes, uh, you know, two nights. Uh, afterwards, you would wear a catheter, a urethral catheter that would drain the bladder typically for anywhere from five to seven days. Uh, the procedure itself is pretty well tolerated. The complication or risks are pretty low. Um, the side effects in terms of long-term uh, are very similar to the radiation side effects. So those could include erection problems, uh, incontinence of urine. That means you lose some of the ability to control the urine, but that tends to be pretty, pretty unlikely. Um, so th that's basically the second that's option. That's the surgical option, yeah. And then I know, um, again, I know there's some other things that are out there, um, hormonal therapy uh, to try to... Uh, reduce some of the hormonal tendencies of some of these prostate, uh, some of these, uh, certainly the aggressive prostate cancers, the, the androgen deprivation theory. Can you comment a little bit about that? Correct. So, you know, androgen um, is, a, is a medical term that describes testosterone, and testosterone is the main male hormone. Breast, or, uh, test, or prostate cancer, I should say, is a very unique cancer in that it's very hormone responsive. So testosterone and a very unique derivative of it called dihydrotestosterone are essentially the main growth factors for prostate cancer cells. So if you eliminate testosterone by either removing the testicles in men, which is called surgical castration, which is one of the old-fashioned treatments for treating patients with advanced prostate cancer, you actually uh, are able to control this cancer for a select period of time, typically anywhere from 18 to 24 months. The cancer essentially freezes. Eventually, it starts to grow in spite of the lack of testosterone. But you can also accomplish lack of testosterone, so to speak, by, producing, by giving patients injections or medications to do that. Uh, hormone therapy, or what's called in, in urology, androgen deprivation therapy, which is any type of treatment to eliminate testosterone, is used in two instances. Usually it's used in patients who have advanced or metastatic disease. So that means cancer that's metastasized or spread to other parts of the body. Again, as a way to control the cancer. And it's also used as an adjuvant treatment. So that means it's used in addition to one of the two curative options we talked about, surgery and radiation. We don't typically use it for surgery because studies have not shown an advantage to giving patients hormones in addition to uh, removing their prostate. But it is definitely used in radiation therapy. So men who have intermediate, some intermediate, and definitely high-risk prostate cancer definitely do better if you put them on androgen deprivation therapy and then you irradiate them as compared to patients who just have radiation therapy alone. Excellent. So as, as you guys can hear now, I mean, I mean, this is some, you know, we're having a good conversation here because, again, we want to know people, tell people that there are options out there for them. And again, these are the questions that, that I want people to be asking when they either come in, maybe see me for some surface level knowledge, but also when you're seeing Dr. Bawan or other of his urology colleagues, it's important that we have these kind of conversations. And sometimes these conversations got to get a little deep on things because it's important when you talk about your life and your health, you want to be have the tools to have the right decisions to make sure that you're doing the, and having the best outcomes possible. Let me ask you this. You know, we talk about like tech. Let's talk a little bit. And you and I talked a little bit. We were texting a little while ago uh, about some of these newer things that are out there. I want to ask you first your thoughts about what I'm seeing, at least in the in the, in the literature. Um, MRI of the prostate. What, is, is that something that, that 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 we can use right away? Is that something? When would you use something like that? Um, a lot of a lot of centers are advertising. Hey, let's see your prostate. We can see it with this high definition MRI. But is that for everybody? That's an excellent question, Dr. G. And this is really 
the active area in prostate cancer research nowadays. So the, the basic problem, as I mentioned earlier, with prostate cancer is most patients who develop it will not die of it. So you can understand that our role as clinicians is to try to identify those few patients who have prostate cancer who are going to die of it and don't bother the rest of the folks who either don't have prostate cancer and sometimes have abnormal PSAs and end up getting biopsied for no reason, or the other patient group, which is a larger patient group, of men who have very slow-growing or clinically insignificant, let's say, prostate cancer. Those patients probably also don't need to be diagnosed and definitely don't need to be treated. So the trick in prostate cancer research nowadays is to try to find some test that can only pick up the patients who have aggressive disease. So there's interest in MRI. MRI is uh, essentially, uh, you know, an imaging technique. It relies on magnets to look at right. tissues. Uh, there has been some interest over the last few years in using it to detect nodules, high-risk nodules in the prostate that might correlate to some extent with, you know, a higher likelihood of prostate cancer. The problem with anything related to prostate cancer is you need long-term studies. So you have to follow a technique or a technology or a test for anywhere from 8 to 10 years before you start to actually see some conclusive evidence that it performs better than what we were doing before, which is just PSAs and digital prostate exams. But I do order it. Uh, so it's used sometimes as a screening tool, but insurance companies usually don't like to pay for it because it's expensive. Yeah, correct. And because the data is still outstanding, so to speak, they don't usually uh, um, you know, approve it very easily. The other uh, definitely helpful way that MRI is used is in patients who have high-risk disease. So say I diagnose a patient with high Gleason score, aggressive appearing prostate cancer, and that patient is considering having their prostate removed. An MRI can help me identify evidence that the cancer has spread outside of the prostate. Because if it is, if it does appear to be that way on the MRI, that patient probably is incurable by surgery alone. So they're going to need to have radiation therapy anyways, and that patient might be told, you're better off just getting hormones and radiation yes. where we can treat your whole pelvis than go through a three-hour surgery that may not potentially cure you. Excellent. What about some of this other thing? I know you were telling me a little bit uh, about using like a urine sample and trying to look at some maybe the more of the molecular uh, aspects. Is there some other kind of new tech that's on the horizon that is kind of piquing your interest? So there's, a, there's an explosion of uh, what we call uh, genetic and, and biomarkers. And, and again, all of those are intended for the same purpose which we talked about before, which is to try to risk stratify patients. So a patient comes into my office, uh, you know, we can use them at different stages of the progression from, you know, they get their PSA test at their primary care physician's office and they come see us. That's essentially the start line. So there's tests that we can administer at that stage. These are genetic tests. And there's, you know, I printed off a list of them because I have difficulty keeping track of them. So there's PSA we talked about. There's something called SelectMD. There's a PHI or a PHI test. There's a 4K score. Again, these are intended to determine if I am at a high likelihood of having aggressive disease. Then you move on to patients who have a biopsy. And you can do testing on the tissue samples. In other words, a patient has cancer in the prostate. We diagnosed it. I can actually send that specimen that is now sitting in our pathology department to a company that can do additional testing on it to look for particular genes that might be associated with aggressive prostate cancer. Then there is another point that we can potentially use, which is a patient has had a biopsy, the biopsy is negative, 
I'm seeing them now a year or two years later and their PSA continues to climb, so now it's doubled, and I'm trying to figure out if that patient needs to have another biopsy or if I don't. So I might administer a test that can help push me that yes, this patient is at high risk. But the problem again with all of these tests is the lack of long-term data to suggest that one performs better than the other one. Insurances are sort of, insurance companies are sort of spotty in terms of covering these. Many of these are not covered, so patients sometimes are told that they might have to pay out of pocket for some of them. Many of them are becoming more readily covered even by Medicare, which is usually late to yeah, the game in Medicare terms of covering like things. <laughs> Correct. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you for giving us a little more of the breakdown of some of the new tech out there. And it's interesting, we, we talked about, actually on the show, uh, as we are evolving in technology um, in life and everything that we do, medicine is evolving as well, too. And, and so it's going to be really interesting to see how some of this blend of technology and what we're doing in medicine, again, things that we do now will maybe obsolete or maybe completely different five years from now, uh, or even 20 years from now, we might look back and say, you guys treated prostate cancer that way. Uh, what were you guys? What were you guys on? You know, they might start saying things like that. So, so it's it's interesting to see how this technology has been moved in. But you're right. At the end of the day, for any kind of medical condition, we want to stratify people. We want to find out what is their risk. Are they low risk? Are they higher risk? And what kind of corresponding intervention we to do? So I want to uh, kind of switch topics a little bit now, and we're going to have a little fun. We're having fun anyway. It's only wrong. We're going to have some more fun. But I want to kind of get to a section uh, that I've been doing on this on my hashtag Cancer Suck series called Myths versus Facts. So I'm going to ask Dr. Bawan, uh, I'm going to say a statement, and these are statements that people have told me over the years. I do not have a photographic memory uh, at all, but I remember certain things <laughs> that people say, uh, and so I've got some, uh, some statements in relation to prostate cancer. So I'm going to say myth versus fact. I'm going to say the statement, and Doc, I want you to either say myth or fact. And then maybe give me like a, like a one or two sentence response on why it might be a myth. All right, so here we go. First statement here. Prostate cancer is an old man's disease. Myth or fact? Fact. So it is a, it is a cancer that is much more common in older men. The problem is it's a slow-growing cancer. So while it is more common in older men, the significance of this prostate cancer is diminished the older you get. So it's that sweet spot in the middle. It's the 55 to 70-year-old or 75-year-old that has a high likelihood of having it and a high likelihood of having difficulty from it because it might limit their life expectancy. So I would give that a plus minus. Yeah, yeah I, I would agree on that one. I think as a primary care, I'm like, yeah, I've seen some cases, and I know you've seen cases where, you know, you're diagnosed maybe a little bit younger, but you're sure. right, slow, slow growing. All right, so here's the next myth versus fact. If you don't have any symptoms... You don't have prostate cancer. I would give that a myth. And please give me a, just a brief explanation on why you think so. Because the majority of patients with prostate cancer don't have symptoms. No. Correct. So it's detected by an abnormal prostate exam, which typically patients don't have any symptoms from, or an abnormal PSA. Thank you. All right. Next one. Prostate cancer is a slow-growing cancer, so I don't need to really worry about it. So that's a complex yeah. question. It's a loaded that's, one. A, that's a loaded <laughs> one, exactly. So uh, many organizations have recommended uh, scaling back in terms of prostate cancer screening efforts, primarily because of this issue, which is that it's true in the most in the majority of patients, prostate cancer is a slow-growing cancer, but it still is one of the most lethal cancers in men in the United States. Uh, when you compare it to the numbers of cases diagnosed, 
there's a discrepancy there, but we can't ignore the fact that 30,000 people 30, die of cancer right. every year. Thank right. you for thank you for your comment, commentary. Um, here's the next one. Prostate cancer doesn't run in my family, so the odds aren't great that I will get it. True. I, I would say that that's true. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, next one here. Here we go. Uh, a high PSA level means that you have prostate cancer, and a low PSA level means that you do not have prostate cancer. Is that a myth or a fact? For the most part, that is true. Okay. However, you can have a low PSA, so below the cutoff of normal at 4, and still have prostate cancer. And actually, most patients who have a PSA above 4, which is what we consider normal, say between 4 and 10, don't have prostate cancer. So it essentially raises a flag if you have a PSA of 6, let's say, or 7, but it doesn't mean that you have prostate cancer. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I usually tell, tell a lot of my patients in the practice that if I see a high PSA, yes, I'm going to send them over to you, but I tell a lot of my guys that a lot of times it's related to the prostate being enlarged. That is correct. Okay. All right, next one here. We'll just do a couple more. Uh, vasectomies cause prostate cancer. Myth. Absolutely. That's been shown in multiple studies to be a myth. Thank you very much for covering that. Again, that's a question that I get asked a lot uh, in primary care. All right, next one here. Myth or fact? We'll just do a couple more. Um, you, can't, you can't have a baby after developing prostate cancer. Well, I think uh, that's a kind of a unique question. Most of patients who have this disease are, aren't typically concerned about, you know, having children. Yeah, they're, they're pretty much all. Correct. Yeah. Uh, but many of the treatments definitely can cause fertility issues. So if you have your prostate removed, you're essentially, you know, not fertile afterwards because we're cutting your vas deferens. These are the tubes that bring the sperm to the urethra. Radiation therapy, for all intents and purposes, can also cause issues with fertility problems. Thank you for clarifying. And we'll do one more. Here we go. Sexual activity increases my risk of developing prostate cancer. Myth or fact? That is myth. As a matter of fact, there's been some studies, and again, this is not conclusive, but there's been some studies that actually correlate the number of ejaculations in a month with a lower risk of prostate cancer. I'm not asking them right, to tell, sex, you're tell, you're tell the guys out there to get I, a little I, more lucky. I would say that that's not clear, but definitely increased sexual activity does not increase the risk of prostate cancer. Thank, thank you for clarifying that. Again, these are these are things that I kind of hear and I kind of jot things down on mine or write it down on a piece of paper and, and go from there. All right, so we've got about five minutes left, and we've been having just a really good conversation. I'm just trying to break down just the reality of prostate cancer and the reality of our risk as men uh, you know, I really want, want people that are out there to, to, to again, know, step one with anything in health, establish a relationship with a good primary care doctor. That is your entry point into the medical system. We don't want your entry point to be the emergency room with a life-threatening illness or anything like that, but, but, but the goal, of course, is preventing, preventing, preventing. Uh, and that's a big kind of sticking point that I have with a lot of my patients. But we got about five minutes left, and so what I want to kind of do we mentioned at the beginning of the show, we call it the chief complaint when people come in. And, and then when, of course, when, we're, when we are done assessing our patients and we get them ready to get on their way and get back into their day, we call it the assessment and plan. So as we kind of wrap up prostate cancer, um, Dr. Bala, why don't you give us maybe a couple take-home points for those that are listening to us or watching us on Facebook Live. What are some just take-home points for people about prostate cancer? What, what do we want to tell them about this? So I think the take-home for prostate cancer is we should not ignore it because a lot of the stuff on the Internet, you mentioned Dr. Google, yeah, Dr. Google. essentially tells you just to ignore this disease because some of the organizations that have looked at data 
about treatment of prostate cancer, about mortality from prostate cancer, come away with recommendations that make patients feel like they can just ignore this cancer. And I don't believe that to be the case. Uh, I think the central tenant of prostate cancer is to get educated about it. So be it from your primary care physician, they're very knowledgeable resources uh, about prostate cancer, but certainly it should not be ignored. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I think a PSA test every couple of years for patients who are over the age of 50 is definitely, in my opinion, of benefit. If you have a strong family history of it, if you are African-American, you should probably have a PSA beginning in your mid-40s, mid to late 40s. And just if that falls less than 1.5, kind of a low number, you can probably wait until your 50s to start screening for it every two years. Uh, if it becomes abnormal, if the PSA is high, I try, like you mentioned earlier, to reassure patients that that doesn't mean that you have prostate cancer. It just means that we should look for prostate cancer. I also give patients some comfort in what I tell them, which is that a lot of my patients, we don't do treatment at all. We don't treat them for prostate cancer. We just monitor them, and most of them do just fine. So while in most cases it is a very slow-growing cancer, the trick is to find those patients who have aggressive disease and treat them. Thank you. And kind of my final thoughts are this. If you're concerned about prostate cancer, I want you to talk with your doctor. As, as Dr. Balwan said, if there's a family history, again, talk with your doctor. It starts a lot at that relationship uh, in primary care. Talk with a specialist. Uh, again, if there's any kind of concern at all, there's no such thing when it comes to cancer, there's no such thing as crying wolf. Uh, I'd rather see somebody and give them reassurance versus not seeing somebody who may have some legitimate concerns and that gets ignored or diagnosed when it's too late. So again, establish a good relationship with your doctor. Take advantage of ongoing communication. Get screened and hopefully this leads to you living a healthy life. So I want to thank my colleague today, Dr. Badwan uh, over at Elmhurst Clinic, board certified urologist. Check him out again, www.eehealth.org. Uh, you know me, I'm Dr. G. Uh, I'm going to be off next week. I'm going to play a little golf. Why not? But I'll see you guys back here in two weeks. In two weeks, we're going to be breaking down. Uh, it's going to be my first uh, episode of my Back to School Health Series, Part 1. We're going to talk about the basics. Again, you can check me out on my website, www.drmarkgomez.com. Peace out.